God speaks to us through his word in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the Nan of Natali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as, joy, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot on the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, good morning. Good to see you guys. Hey, welcome. College students, we love you. And um, this is this is the... Um, for a lot of you, this will be the last time uh, in the next month or so that we will see you. And uh, we really do want to invite you to come, if you're a part of this church, if you consider yourself a part of this church, and it makes sense for you to, to make the drive, we do want you to come back and be on mission with us at Christmas Eve. Um, if you don't do that, then we love you and, and bless you. We really are uh, a better church. This town is a better town for you being in it. And I uh, love you guys a lot, and we'll miss you, okay? Hey, my name is Ben. If I haven't met you yet, I'm the lead pastor here. We have been studying uh, the book of Isaiah. And uh, this is our second week in Isaiah through this Advent season. Isaiah is an Old Testament book, if you're not familiar with the Bible. And um, it has some of the most vivid prophecies about Jesus. What's interesting, though, is Isaiah was written 700 years before Christ was born, which is uh, kind of interesting. So that lets you know that the plan all along was for, for God to send his son, in, in, which also means that God is coming himself. He is three in one. God is coming himself in, uh, to restore the kingdom of God or to defeat the enemies that we cannot defeat. And the whole Bible, the whole history of the human race, everything that's ever happened before us, everything that will ever happen is all about Jesus Christ being born and him living a perfect life, and then him dying a death that we deserve, and him being raised, and he will eventually come back again to establish, ultimately, his kingdom. Advent is the season that we're in. Advent means, originally, Adventus, which means arrival or coming. So here's the thing. It is about the coming of Christ as a baby, no doubt. We sing the songs. Um, I'm all about it. I'm all about singing the songs, but it's not just about his first coming. There will be a second coming. And the second coming is when Christ will return to restore all things. The Bible says that he will wipe every tear from our eye. Now that's both literal and of course figurative, meaning that all pain will be gone. He will restore heaven to earth, which is what Eden was, okay? Advent is the moment that we're in 
that says, all right, I know that Christ has come. I celebrate it. We sing songs like joy to the world and, um, you know, no more let sins and sorrows grow. We sing songs about that. I get hyped about it. For me growing up, I'm like, yes, hype, Christmas, like the carols, I'm all about it. The problem is, is there's still sin. I'm saying things that don't line up with reality. Joy to the whole world. I mean, every part of the world, even like the worst countries, even like the most dangerous dark places. What about certain dark places in Shawnee? Joy to that, that place is, we're supposed to sing that they have joy. That didn't make a whole lot of sense. Advent is not just us looking to Christ as a baby, it's us also acknowledging the reality that the world is broken, it's dark, you're dark, I'm dark, I still, in my mind, I'm like, I do the things I don't wanna do, and I don't do the things that I want to do. Paul, the apostle who wrote most of the New Testament says that in Romans 7, I do the thing, I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. Who will free me from this body of death? That's the apostle Paul. If he's saying it, then we need to say it as well. We need to just own the reality that right now we want something different than what is happening. That's called idealism. That's our idea of how things should be, how my marriage should be, how my singleness should be, how school should have been. I expected the dog that I got to just obey my every command. Somebody say, I really thought that we were gonna be the first couple of all time to have perfect looking, acting, smiling, never crying babies. And it just didn't, you know, it doesn't work out that way. My idealism, or if you're like me, I'm, I'm like the king, man. You, I could write movies. I can't believe they hadn't asked me to write movies yet. I'm so idealistic about people and about things. I'm like, in my mind, 14 years old, I go, okay, I got it figured out. I'll be the first person ever that has perfectly mapped his life out to a T. I'm going to be the youngest person ever drafted number one overall in the Major League Baseball. That seems reasonable. Uh, and, and I will also just so happen to be my favorite team, uh, which seems reasonable, which I don't know why. Nobody told me that I was uh, picking a perennial loser, you know, back when I picked my favorite team. And then, and then I'll be the first person ever that pitches every single game, never gets hurt, uh, goes undefeated, uh, never gives up a hit or a run, wins every World Series, retires at 30 years old, marries a perfect person, has perfect kids, lives on a perfect ranch in Montana, and I will also, uh, I've decided, I'll also be the first person ever that eats fried chicken and gumbo every meal and it does not affect their health. That's, somebody said amen. I tried that actually for a little while, at least part of that, and it didn't, you know, then I turned 30 and it was over. Um, I'm the king of idealism. The problem is you do the same thing. I mean, I'm describing something silly, but I really do do that. You do the same thing. We have ideals about how life should go. We have ideals about Christmas. I love Christmas, man. My, one of my favorite things in the world is to come back from Thanksgiving and the church is decorated. I love it. I tell the church all the time, like, you won't find anybody that loves the pageantry and all of the stuff, the trees, the whatever, the lights. I'm in. Gifts, bring them to me, man. Everybody here. I love it. I love everything about Christmas. 
Um, but have you noticed how much we hype up the stuff in our life like Christmas and how it just never does meet our expectation? Has anybody, does anybody else do that? Like you think, parents in the room, you think like I've got my kids, this is going to be it. I've got the perfect gift. They don't even know it's going to be a surprise. They have no idea that I have gotten into their brain and figured out how to get them the perfect gift that they don't suspect. And then they open the gift and you're like, this is cool. Thanks, mom. Anybody ever do that? It's just like not quite as satisfied as we think they should be or you're not or whatever it is. I mean, our idealism is off the charts. We have a very Disney idea of how life should go. Advent is us recognizing and living in the reality that things are not as they should be. They're not. My idealism does not match reality. Things are dark. I'm darker than I want to be. Life is dark. And in Isaiah's day... The church, the people of God, were living in a very dark reality. God sends Isaiah to them to help to check them into reality. And the reality is this. The people of God throughout history have played a game. They have never been satisfied like they should be. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you this. God will in one day give the people of God everything that they need. He'll supply it. They need food, he gives it. They need whatever, faith, God gives faith. They need salvation, they need a way out, they need whatever it is. Life, God gives that. God supplies all of their needs according to his riches. And the people of God will go, thank you, God. We love you, we're, we're always gonna worship you. And then the next day, they will say, where is God? Who's gonna provide for us the meals that we need? In Exodus, maybe you're familiar with this story, but a long time ago, the people of God were enslaved. So Israel was enslaved by Pharaoh, by the Egyptians. In almost 400 years, they were enslaved, a little over actually. They were enslaved by Pharaoh. They cried out all the time, uh, who is gonna free us? This is not who we are. Who's gonna free us from this captivity, from this slavery? God, it's 400 years, God hears their cry. He sends Moses through a series of just crazy displays of God's power, including his power over death, the people of God are finally freed. God makes water come out of a rock. They go out into the desert, they're free. They're on their way to a promised land, to the place that God has promised them. God makes water come out of a rock. He makes manna, bread, he makes manna fall from heaven for them. God provides for them in miraculous ways, a cloud that leads them. I mean, this is crazy. And you know what happens as soon as they don't get like a microwave meal? I swear to you, this is exactly what happens. God's people who he's done all that for, they say, we're hungry. We don't know where our next meal is coming from. It would be better for us to go back. I'm not kidding. It would be better for us to go back into slavery. At least we would know where food comes from. I mean, it sounds insane. It is insane. But the thing about it is, is that you do the same thing. I do the same thing. God provides, and then we meet immediately because of the curse, because of the fall, because we're dark. We say, when is God going to provide? We live in this covering of anxiety. I'm preaching like I, it happens to me, because it does. Isaiah is writing 700 years before Christ, he, he, God is giving him to his people uh, to let them know, follow God. Stop, 
Stop questioning God. Stop going to other things. Give God your anxiety. Israel had been led by terrible kings. Uh, Assyria was on approach. Assyria was coming up to this land. Nephtali and Zebulun, that was where they were entering in. God was allowing that to happen because he was bringing judgment on a nation that had terrible kings. They were idolatrous. They didn't trust God. Assyria moves in. The people are worshiping all kinds of idols. They're scared. The land is dark. Can you imagine? I mean, a whole nation coming in. Imagine if we were being encroached, if we were small enough to be encroached by the whole world. They were about to take over America and they were gonna enslave us. That's what was happening with Assyria. Can you imagine the type of darkness and anxiety we would live in? Which, by the way, we don't even need that to happen to having, we have anxiety today, right now, no matter what. There's darkness. And into that darkness, God gives Isaiah this prophecy about light into a dark land. Advent is us waiting, anticipating, looking to Jesus. The first thing is this, it's us facing reality, it's us facing the darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Remember, that's where the Assyrians were approaching Israel. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the nations. Again, God has consistently delivered, fed, clothed his people, but they keep turning away to other gods. Assyria is encroaching. Israel's under stress. They've neglected the needy among them. They've become idolatrous. Their current king, Ahaz, makes a deal with the king of Assyria to give him land out of fear that he might lose his position. And then the Jewish people of God are now taken into slavery. From their fear, which is encroaching imminent all over, God's people stop seeking God and they start turning to darkness. They start going to witchcraft. Stuff that we see out of Lord of the Rings. In chapter eight, the chapter before this, uh, God sends Isaiah to call his people back to him because here's what's happening, it's this. And when they say to you, this is Isaiah saying to the people, inquire of the mediums, that's a spiritual person or whatever, and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. So these are, these are witches. The people of God who God has consistently delivered and protected, they're going to witches. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? You're performing seances. You're looking for wisdom from those that have died without God. You're going to witches, you're going to dark people, evil people. You are running to evil things and all the while calling yourself a person of y'all, a person of God. You understand how that doesn't work? There's actually multiple times in the Bible that the Lord, that the Lord will say things like, don't sing to me. Don't sing to me. Stop singing. You live an idolatrous life. You're singing songs and not living the stuff that you're singing. Your worship is, I don't hear it anymore. Because your life is a life of worship. That's what's happening here. And the deal about it is, is that we, we think, okay, I'm not going to witches. But yes, you are. Yes, you are. 
The Bible actually describes rebellion this way. Rebellion is as witchcraft. And I'm, t- I'm talking to myself. It, we are going to other things. We are going to things that we expect to be almighty. We expect it to have the kind of power and presence that only God can have. We expect our spouse to fulfill all of our needs according to their riches and glory. And when they don't, you're not useful to me. You were supposed to be God for me, and now you're not. That's what we expect. We, we go to spiritual, we turn concrete things into idols. And the problem was that, you know, the things that we idolize, we eventually demonize. So even our spouse can become that. God, is, God gives us this word. He's giving his people his word through the prophet Isaiah to say, you, you should be inquiring of God, but you're going to all this other stuff. We're addicted to the darkness. We get addicted to cynicism. We get addicted to rebellion. We be, it becomes a thing that's comfortable for us. You ever, I find this in myself, man. It's just like, how do I get so comfortable with things that bring death to me? How? They become, and then I choose them because it's actually comfortable. It's more comfortable for me to like avoid the conflict of myself, avoid the conflict with you. It's more comfortable for me to like just keep doing the thing that's so destructive. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm preaching myself. Then to lay down, according to the Bible, it's like deny myself, take up my cross. That's the thing that gives life. We become addicted to it. We become addicted to skepticism towards God, and so were they. So then this, where, the question is ultimately is for all of us, and it's for them, where is the hope for us? Let me ask you this. Given what I've just told you about God's people and given how much you're thinking about yourself right now, just like, yeah, I don't, I struggle, you know, to say the least. If you were God, what would you do? I don't need you to raise your hand, but I really want you to think about it. If you were God and you had this level of rebellion and craziness with the people that you created and that you loved, what would, how would you handle it? I know exactly how, I'm like, I think of myself as gracious, but I'm like, man, grace is, I, you had one, you betrayed me to the uttermost one time. And then I had a lot of grace and I let you, you know, and then you betrayed me another time to the uttermost betrayal. And then, and then I decided, you know what, I'm gonna be an extraordinarily good man and I'm gonna give you one other time. And then that third time, but it's like, my gosh, you know, at that point we're having a conversation, you know what I'm saying? You, this is number three. One, two, three. <laughs> that's three too many. You're done. That's, if I were God, that's what I would do. You probably would do the same. Can you imagine if you were in control of that? How about if you just woke up on the wrong side of the bed one day? What if you're just like me and it's like, I was fine when I went to bed and I woke up and now I'm sad. I don't know why. I'm upset. What if you were just a little bit, what if God were just a little bit moody? Or what if this, what if God had all, most of the time he was perfectly even killed, like completely perfectly faithful, 
but he's got the slightest temper. We don't know. It could be one in a thousand years, one in a million years, one in ten years. He's going he's gonna to lose it. One of these, that's been proven. He's got the slightest temper. Can you imagine the kind of anxiety that we would live, like, is today going to be the day? What would you do if you were God? Here's what God does. Advent is us facing the darkness. Advent is also God facing the darkness. It proves his character to us. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish in the, for, in the former time. He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Again, Zebulun and Naphtali, this geography is important because this is the very place that the enemies of God's people are sort of infiltrating God's people. It says, in that place, on the shore, where they set down, that's where God is gonna build uh, worship for himself. Verse two is this, the promise of God. I'm just so glad he's not like us. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Notice the past tense. This is a prophetic word for Isaiah, meaning there's, there's a prediction here. Isaiah is so confident in what God is telling him that he's saying it as if it's already happened. And notice how it's happening. On them a light has shone. On them a light has shone. Meaning this, they were in darkness. They were going from bad to worse. And then they were going from worse to worser. That is a word, I'm sure of it. They weren't moving towards God. They weren't coming to their senses. There was nothing happening other than they were just in darkness and on them a light has shone. They had absolutely nothing to do with the light. They didn't decide they needed a light. They were in darkness and God acted because God is good. A light has shone on the darkness. Verse three, to God he says, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. It's a lot of old language here, but basically what he's saying is this. This is not just for you, this is not just for your household. Uh, you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. Can you imagine how good this would be to hear if you were in utter darkness all the time and anxiety? God is gonna save a whole people, is what it's saying. From anxiety to joy. Verse four, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Midian is this place that, had, that represented in the Bible, there's a, a man named Gideon. Midian and Gideon, I get it sounds kind of confusing. Midian is a place and a people Gideon, they were opposing God's people. Gideon was one of God's people. Gideon was very outnumbered. There were 20,000 plus soldiers in the army of Midian. Gideon had like 300 men. God empowers Gideon and it's because of God that Gideon actually defeats the armies of Midian. He's referencing this. What happened in Gideon could have only been attributed to victory from God. Nobody else could say that they have victory outside of God. He did it. Gideon didn't have superhuman strength, also, whatever. It was God that defeated that army. What he's saying is this there will be, against all odds, 
the army that you're up against, your greatest enemy, God will do the work and he himself by himself will defeat it. It says, for the yoke of his burden, for the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. Yoke means this, it's applied suffering. He is going to suffer. He's gonna take a yoke of burden. Staff meaning this, staff is applied comfort. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Rod meaning this, rod, literally, the rod of his oppressor means that he will apply suffering to his enemies. So it's this, it's yoke, suffering will be done to him. It's staff, we will have comfort from the suffering done to him. And it's rod, he will apply suffering to an enemy. Verse five, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is the weirdest one and I think one of the coolest. This is God, this is God saying, as I say, Isaiah saying on behalf of God, even the garments that your, the army, that your enemy army, the garments, the tools, the weapons, all of that will be burned as fuel for the fire. It's this, even the things that clothed them, the things that were on their side that they would use against you, God is gonna take and use it for you. Romans eight twenty eight tells us this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The story of Joseph in, in Genesis 50, Joseph was abandoned, sold into slavery by his, by his brothers, left for dead, and God spared his life, and then throughout his life, he rose up to prominence, and then his brothers come back to him, and they're expecting to be killed. They're expecting to at least go to jail, and what Joseph does is he forgives them, and he says this, you intended something for evil, God intended for my good. I want you to understand how powerful someone has to be if they can take even the enemy's wardrobe after defeating them and said, we're not gonna waste one ounce of this. We're even gonna use all the things that the enemy meant for evil. We're gonna use it for your good. That's power. That's power. Question is now, I was like, okay, this is powerful. This is, can you imagine if you were Israel in Isaiah's day? and you're listening to this prophecy, and can you imagine just if you stopped right here and you go, okay, what kind of warrior? This has to be a 15 to 20 to 30 foot tall dude. <laughs> just all kinds of armor, probably tactical gear, you know, superhuman, laser eyes, whatever. I mean, he's gotta be superhuman. This was huge, and here's, that moment, here's what Isaiah, here's how he describes the warrior. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. A child? And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Advent is about a baby. It's about a baby. Again, do you ever think about all the ways that God could have been? This describes God in such a beautiful way. He could have been someone who doesn't listen. He could have been someone who doesn't care. He could have had all that power. 
He would have. He's God. He could have been evil. He could have created us just to mess with us. Can you imagine if he had one ounce of darkness in him? Can you imagine what he would be like? And he's a wonderful counselor. Translated means this, a wonder of a counselor. He loves us being in the room. He listens. He gives godly wisdom. He's different than every other type of counselor. If you need counseling, that's good. Go to counseling, man. I've been. It's fine. But nobody's like Jesus. A wonderful counselor. It also means that he's powerful. The words that he says, they release chains off of us. He's mighty God, full of power. Power over darkness and sin. Power even over death. Power to give beauty for ashes. He's mighty. Power to silence the enemy and subdue nature by a word of his power. He's an everlasting father, meaning this. He's the kind of dad that we all want to be and the kind that we all wanted to grow up with. Always wise, always available. He's a teacher. And the best thing about him is he never leaves. You don't have to worry about this dad leaving. He is an everlasting. He has the title. He's given you, if you're in Christ, he's given you the title as a forever son or daughter. He's an everlasting forever father. There's many of us in the room, me included, that have gone through life wondering what it was like to have a dad that was consistent. God is everlasting. And he's the prince of peace. Ephesians 2 says this, for he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It's this way. Jesus is peace. He doesn't just have peace to give. If you want peace, you go to the source of peace. Which also means that even if you don't feel peace, even if you don't feel it, you're anchored to the one who is peace. So you cannot feel it and still know peace. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's Jesus. Matthew 4, this is when Jesus is about to start his ministry on earth. I love this. This is as clear a picture as the prophecy fulfilled as there ever was. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, talking about Jesus. And in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. It's this, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy about himself. And then he says, from the time Jesus began to preach saying this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Multiple other times he would say, the words that you have read, you are seeing fulfilled today in me. Isaiah 9 is about Christ. Christ is fulfilling that at hand. 700 years before his both birth, Isaiah gave the people of God the hope of the nations. 
And finally this, of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and then forevermore. Not just today, not just tomorrow, not just a reign for a year. This is a forever reign of the goodness of God. And my favorite line of this whole thing, how will he do it? Is he reluctant? Is he frustrated at how silly we are? Is he like me or you? And then he's like annoyed that I once again have to go save them. How will he do it? What will his countenance be like? What will his attitude be like? Will he even want to do it? This one line proves something incredible to us. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. You know what zeal means? It's translated as an action. It's like a state of being. It's red-faced. Zeal meaning literally face red. There's whatever it is that you're so passionate about or you're so angry about, you have a red face. You're, there's, a, there's, a, there's an intensity that makes the blood rush to your face. Do you understand? The red-faced love of God will do it. He is zealous for us and zealous, angry, bitterly angry at death, bitterly angry at sin and despair and darkness and anxiety. How will he do it? What will his nature be like? It'll be the red-faced love of God that comes for us. He cannot wait, cannot wait. How did he go to the cross? The Bible says it was for the joy set before him that he endured a Roman torture device for us. The zeal, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. That's power. Advent is us embracing the dark. It's not living counterfeit. It's not forgetting about the darkness. It's not like trying to be idealistic. It's us embracing reality. It's dark. But there's also us embracing the reality. But my hope is not in me. My hope is in Christ. And he came to me. He pursued me in his zeal. Are you kidding me? God is so zealous for us. Yes, of course, that's where I'm putting my hope. Question for you, the question for me is this. I don't know, I know some of you, I don't know all of you, but I guarantee you there's multiple people in this room uh, that have lost their hope. And I would just invite you today to look, where is your hope? Where is it? Is it gone? It could be. Maybe you've never actually found it. Maybe you're one of the everybody else in here that have tried to put your hope in yourself or your hope in a person or your hope in a job or whatever, and it just never does quite fulfill you. Matter of fact, it, not even that, it just lets you weigh down. Where's your hope? There's one way to have your hope um, properly placed and satisfied, and that's in putting it in Christ. That's it. Are you only living in anxiety and darkness? Have you forgotten the zeal of God in Christ? And my invitation to you today, I think the Lord's inviting you to do it, is to remember God, remember him. Remember him. He's worth every ounce of your life, every ounce of it.
Let's stand together as we get ready to take communion.